We're now living in a world where the idea of fake news has entered the public lexicon. But fake news, even the accusation of fake news, is one part of the wider weaponization of information for political purposes. Disinformation, content that has been deliberately manipulated or fabricated for a particular goal, has become a weapon of politics and a weapon of war. In this podcast, we will explore how to survive these disinformation wars. Hello and welcome to the New Lines podcast. I'm Faisal Yafai. Many of you will be very familiar with the idea of fake news, made popular by a reality TV star you may have heard of. But fake news isn't only skewed reporting. The left would say that Fox News is fake news. The right would say the New York Times is. Both argue that the reporting is so skewed that it is practically propaganda. But disinformation is deeper than that. You'll hear from our guests today about how it has been weaponized by countries as a tool of war. You'll hear how it has been used to obfuscate responsibility for war crimes in Syria and political crimes elsewhere. And you'll hear how it can be used against you individually and how you can protect yourself. Our first guest is Nina Yankovic, a fellow at the Wilson Center in Washington, D.C., and an expert on disinformation and democratization. She is Director of External Engagement at Aletheia Group, a firm that detects, analyzes, and mitigates disinformation. And she is the author of the forthcoming book, How to Be a Woman Online. I spoke to Nina Yankovic about how disinformation has become a new way of fighting wars, and particularly about how Russian operatives that perfected their tradecraft against Eastern European states are now turning their tactics to America and the West. But I started by asking her if, of late, her optimism that we can win the disinformation wars has been dented. So I'm not too optimistic uh, since the beginning of this year and the insurrection at, at the U.S. Capitol. That was a pretty dark time, I think, for a lot of people who study information operations and, and disinformation more broadly. Um, obviously, we're all familiar by now, I hope, uh, with the type of state-based information warfare that we've seen coming from places like Russia, like China, like Iran, that are using the technologies that the internet age provides us in order to broadcast messages farther, faster, and more precisely to the audiences that are going to find them most appealing. And those messages tend to undermine trust in democratic institutions. They tend to polarize societies, and in some cases tend to work on behalf of those nation states. But what we've also seen um, over the past couple of years, especially as we've kind of grown more aware of these tactics uh, since the 2016 U.S. election, has been the uh, the kind of commercialization of the information warfare of the past. It's not just governments playing at this anymore. We're seeing for-profit actors like PR agencies being contracted on behalf of governments. We're seeing everyone from uh, you know private sector companies to influencers on Instagram to TikTok stars getting involved in this stuff, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic. And we're also seeing disinformation and information warfare tactics writ large used to silence various populations. So um, again, not just about nation states any longer, much broader than that, and very much at the heart of individual struggle for democratic rights around the world. That, I think, is why you subtitled the book Fake News, because when you have this avalanche of propaganda and PR and news stories that are kind of masquerading as propaganda, other way around, the 
it's sometimes hard to distinguish one from the other. And it becomes much more sophisticated as the years go on. Yeah, exactly. And I think a lot of people also, you know, thanks to Donald Trump, I suppose, understand the moniker fake news. Now, it's not completely accurate, right? Like many of the stories that we would count as disinformation or part of an information operation aren't actually cut and dry fakes. There's some kernel of truth to them, whether it's the grievance that they build upon in society or whether it's, you know, beyond that, the, um, the actual event that has inspired it. So we've seen a lot of disinformation, for instance, around the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, and it's built on, uh, you know, criticisms of the United States and its behavior during those events. And those are legitimate criticisms. They're not necessarily fake, but where they go beyond that um, is, is at least misleading. And so people have trouble kind of bifurcating what's disinformation, what's misinformation, what's malinformation, which is the sort of hack and leak operations that we've seen uh, with the DNC, with the Macron campaign, where private documents are released to the public for malign reasons. Um, and so all of this uh, falls under that moniker of fake news, which again, as an academic is not a particularly helpful term, but it's a useful kind of signpost for most uh, individuals who might not be expert in in this area. But if you are trying to delineate as an academic between all of these different aspects of the disinformation ecosystem, how do you do it? Because when you say fake news, exactly, it's something very useful because people are very familiar with it. But when you think about fake news, as you say, it comes in such a variety of different ways that Truthfully, most people don't honestly believe there is this delineation. They think that what they are seeing on TV, even something reputable like CNN, they think, okay, well, half of it is fake news because of its opinion. And the other half, we can accept that the Americans really did withdraw from Afghanistan. Yeah, that's part of the big problem, I think. Um, a lot of people don't look at the nuance in the world. They, they want to see things in black and white. And actually, a lot of what uh, we experience and and what nations are trying to achieve and certainly what um, individuals are trying to achieve has shades of gray. Even if you look at some of the things, the craziest things that Rudy Giuliani says, of course, are are false. But some of them, again, have little uh, granules of truth baked in there. And that's how they grow and, and get amplified and uh, and flourish in the online environment. It seems to me that that aspect of disinformation is the kind of thing that you have focused most closely on. In, in the book, you're actually quite circumspect about putting it primarily in terms of interstate conflict. You say, as uh, a quote, of course, foreign actors exploited them, the divisions within the United States, but our biggest obstacles were within our own borders. And it seems to me that that's the focus from your work, that not so much what foreign countries like Russia are doing, but what you call citizen-based solutions, in essence, what individuals can do and governments can do. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so when I, I first started learning a lot more about disinformation was when I was living and working in Ukraine as a Fulbright advisor to the uh, foreign minister and the spokesman of the foreign ministry in Ukraine. And obviously, Ukraine is very much on the front lines of the information war, so to speak. And I was perplexed by all of the interventions I saw coming in from the West, from both the US, the UK, and, and the EU, 
um, in terms of fact checking initiatives and things like and things like that, which seems to kind of be missing the point of where this problem was coming from. It wasn't just that Russia or other malign actors were making up outlandish stories. It was that people had real grievances against the government uh, in Ukraine, or if we're talking about the Czech Republic or elsewhere in the region, that, um, that malign actors were able to exploit. And so I think as much as we want an easy solution to disinformation, we want to be able to fact check our way out of this crisis. Unfortunately, we, we can't do it. Um, it's as much about good governance as it is about media literacy, as it is about, you know, our leaders uh, adhering to some standard of truth that seems to have escaped us for so long. And I think it's important for people to understand that, you know, we're not going to play whack-a-troll on Facebook and, and win this battle. It really is about reinvigorating the democratic system from the ground up. And, and so far, I think we've really not gained that perspective. I think that's part of the reason why January 6th took law enforcement and lawmakers by surprise. And actually, I wrote a piece for Foreign Affairs uh, a few days after the insurrection, um, which, you know, I, I closed it by saying that January 6th was the day that the internet came for them, for, for lawmakers in Washington. I had been uh, testifying a, a number of times before Congress and really faced a lot of resistance at this idea that online disinformation could truly affect our, our democracy. And in reality, I think that many lawmakers and policymakers around the world didn't really understand the extent to which the online discourse, especially during COVID-19, has mirrored the offline and really served as um, kind of a harbinger of things to come. Uh, and that's frankly why I'm I'm less optimistic than I used to be. Do you always think that there is a, a kernel of realistic grievance at the heart of these disinformation campaigns? Sometimes there are, you know, very, very outlandish claims, um, but even some of the most outlandish ones, if we again look at Afghanistan and the recent uh, attempt by RT to uh, Photoshop RPGs into the backpacks of Afghan refugees, or if we look at a story from the Czech Republic during the height of the migrant crisis in, in 2015 and 2016 that claimed that uh, because of the Muslim migrants to the Czech Republic, pork would no longer be served in Czech schools, which if you know the Czech Republic, you know that that would be absolute blasphemy. Um, so, <laughs> uh, I mean, again, you know, these are both ridiculous. You could tell that that photo was photoshopped. It would be easy to fact check whether or not pork was being still served in, in Czech schools. Uh, but they they really get at this um, underlying grievance in society, either against, well, in both cases, against refugees, right? This um, this discomfort with the other coming in and, and upending, theoretically, the cultural and, uh, you know, democratic norms of the of the country that they're uh, immigrating to. So, mm -hmm. so those are the things I think that are at the core there. Even if th the truth is this deeply held belief that may or may not be based in fact, it appeals to something within people. And that's why it makes it so hard to, uh, to fact check our way out of.
It sounds almost like a form of entertainment. I mean, sometimes, you know, when you are watching a, a TV show or something, you know that those people are actors, but you go along with it for the ride. And it sounds like a lot of the disinformation is rooted in that, that people, as you say, they can see that Photoshop is not very good, but they go along with it. And this is even the case in the States where people must know that some of the more, more outlandish stories about the Clintons or whoever the, the Democrat side can't be true, but they sort of think it's, it's close enough, I'll go along for the ride. Yeah, absolutely. And we see this a lot with gendered disinformation as well. So I did a research study at the beginning of the year, uh, or that was released at the beginning of the year, but it was ahead of the 2020 US election, looking at a bunch of women candidates for office, both in the US and in the UK, New Zealand and Canada. And in particular, we saw a lot of terribly photoshopped images of Kamala Harris, 78% uh, of the over 300,000 instances of abuse or disinformation that we tracked across six platforms was directed at her. And a lot of it was this terrible meme-like imagery of her photoshopped into sexually promiscuous positions or um, with you know, just really degrading um, situations, things like that. Uh, or even in some cases, transphobic photos that claimed she was secretly a man. And they were clearly photoshopped, clearly poorly photoshopped, but they had hundreds and thousands of shares across these platforms. Um, and I think the idea isn't, is this realistic or not? It's, does it scratch an itch for me? Is it entertaining me as I scroll through this platform? Is it funny? Or does it allow me to kind of get out my anger at the other side? And that that's true not only for Democratic women or liberal women, we've seen it uh, against conservative women in uh, the countries that we've studied as well. You would draw a direct line, I guess, from these memes that, as you say, scratch an itch all the way through to the uprising of the capital. I mean, you would think that it somehow motivates people into action at a certain point. Well, I mean, when you look at some of the things that we saw in the past year with uh, off online action triggering offline action from, you know, the kidnapping plot against Governor Gretchen Whitmore, uh, Governor Gretchen Whitmer of, of Michigan, to uh, some of the things that the insurrectionists said about finding Nancy Pelosi, about finding Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or other members of the quote unquote squad, you know, absolutely, this this drives um, violence against people and not just against uh, politicians, but a lot of women who are in the public eye, even nominally, and I would consider myself one of those folks who's nominally in the public eye, uh, we have to worry for our safety when we when we go outside because we're regularly receiving messages about things like, you know, you'll be taken care of in the streets, you deserve mm -hmm. to be in Guantanamo Bay. And those are the more tame things that I've heard from people. Mm. I mean, do you think now so in the book you've you chided governments for being too focused on you know, opposing foreign governments like Russia at the cost of building a stronger society through social programs at home? But I wonder if you feel and that was, of course, pre the uprising. I wonder if yeah. you feel that now the national security approach is going to is really going to come to the fore because that's an easy way for uh, politicians to understand what is happening. I would love to say that it has come to the fore, but unfortunately, we haven't really seen that from the U.S. government, at least. I, I have you know, been encouraged by some of the things that the U.K. government has done. And in fact, I think have, they have filled a vacuum that the U.S. has left open while you know, the Trump administration didn't want to take care of the disinformation problem. And now the Biden administration is, is quite 
you know, overwhelmed with some other crises that we have. Um, unfortunately, you know, disinformation connects all of those crises. So uh, whether we have to frame this as a national security question in order to get action on it, um, it, I, I think at this point is immaterial as long as we recognize that there's a domestic part of that equation, um, that there's, you know, a domestic um, understanding of disinformation that is actually manipulated also by our, our foreign friends. Uh, you know, uh, domestic extremists are perfect targets for Russia, for China, for Iran. Um, mm. Gendered disinformation targeting women in the United States or the UK is certainly something that China, Iran, and Russia have all used in their information operations before. So all these domestic misgivings, domestic events, domestic polarization, all of that is fodder for our enemies. And if that gets lawmakers and policymakers to act, then great, um, as long as we're looking inward and trying to mend those fissures ourselves. Is it your sense that within the US government that the representatives do understand the scale of the program. Um, you had a run-in with uh, with a representative Jim Himes last year when you testified at the, at the House, and it seemed as if he was more worried about the idea of government intervening to stop disinformation than the disinformation itself. Yeah, that was a disappointing uh, situation for me, especially because Representative Himes um, comes from the Democratic Party, which has been pretty good at sounding the alarm bell about disinformation and online harms. Um, I think there, there are legitimate arguments to be made against, uh, you know, really draconian anti-free speech measures. And in fact, I've done research about this that I did subsequently send to uh, Representative Himes's office. Um, I don't want to see the government deciding what stays up and what comes down online. Uh, I think, you know, as long as it's a professional body that's doing this, as long as there are limits to such legislation, uh, we, we need to think about it because we have those restrictions for TV, for radio, for print. Um, and in some countries, they're, they're even broader reaching than here. And I think we really need to start thinking about this because so much of our daily life is happening online, especially, again, during the pandemic. Um, and people's not only people's public health and, and livelihood is at stake, but their safety is at stake in many in many uh, situations. And so it's really important that um, not only the policymakers on Capitol Hill, but those in the civil service uh, and, you know, political appointed positions understand that it's really important we start acting on this because the hole is just getting wider and deeper and it's going to be much more difficult for us to fish ourselves out of when the time comes if we mm. keep letting this linger. It, there's quite a lot of... Uh, gray space in the argument. I think that's part of the difficulty because there are potential dangers with um, giving the government increased powers to restrict information. Uh, you you spoke with the the Czech journalist Jaroslav Pleschel about that, and he made the point that people often feel that fighting lies, online lies, means fighting opinion. And you have to draw a, a distinction between those things, but that distinction is not easy to draw. No, it's not. Um, it's definitely not easy to draw. And I think as long as there is transparency around these decisions, we can perhaps not rest assured that no mistakes will be made, but we, we can know that the democratic process will work as it's intended to. And journalists can report on the decisions being made and people can register their complaints or make appeals. In many cases, a lot of the laws that we've seen passed in order to combat disinformation in places like Germany with their NetsDG law or even Ukraine, which had a nascent form 
of an anti-disinformation legislation before the pandemic, um, they didn't involve any of that appeal. They, they used a politically appointed individual to, uh, to push forward the regulation um, and didn't include many you know, expert uh, moderators or, or regulators involved. And I think as long as we depoliticize the process as much as possible and encourage as much information sharing as we can on behalf of both the tech platforms and the government, then you know, sunshine will, uh, will disinfect the rest of it. And perhaps that's too rosy of a view, but that's how a lot of the other regulations and spaces we never thought could be regulated work. Um, and they work quite well. But you're convinced that there is a government answer, that it isn't only an individual responsibility? Well, I think self-regulation has not worked. Um, we see that not only for disinformation, but for much, much more serious online harms like hate speech, like human trafficking, like um, gendered abuse that we've been seeing or abuse against marginalized communities. And it should be said um, that all of the gendered disinformation that I have researched is uh, orders of magnitude worse for women who have marginalized identities, either uh, ethnic identities or, or sexual identities. They just receive, um, it's much, much more compounded. And so the platforms haven't done their job there. Law enforcement is not equipped to do their jobs and to protect people who are experiencing online harms or online harms that have become offline harms. Um, and we've seen these effects on public health, public safety, and the democratic process. So I think it's clear that somebody has to step in uh, and I think, you know, this is government's job when, a, when an airline, uh, airline industry is, you know, out of control or, or a, a, you know, a, a specific uh, provider there it doesn't have safe planes. We launch an inquiry and we're still in the inquiry stage here. But I think, uh, you know, it's time that government step in and, and really put some some bumpers on this bowling alley, so to speak. <laughs> mm. I want to come back to, to gender, but I want to talk about geopolitics briefly. So you, we've at the magazine, when we've covered uh, a fair amount about disinformation, particularly in the context of what you might think of as three battlefields, the Middle East, um, Ukraine and Eastern Europe, and then, of course, America and the West itself. So I want to take them briefly in turn. We've talked about America. You said you spent, you spent some time in Ukraine and you believe that a lot of the disinformation trends started there. What is it that you think about the Ukrainian space that made it the beginning of this information warfare? That's an interesting question. So I think when we're talking about Russian disinformation in particular, it's a space that Russia understood very well. Um, it's no secret that Ukraine and Russia for a long time were, were extremely integrated. Uh, and many Ukrainians will, you know, uh, kind of bristle at that. But, it, but it's true that especially during the Soviet period, um, the Ukrainian kind of government uh, and elite was highly, highly integrated with the Russian and, and Soviet state. Um, and so I think that that is part of it, that understanding of identity, the, the fact that uh, during the Soviet period and early post-Soviet period in Ukraine, many people spoke Russian as their first language. Um, and education in many cases was conducted in Russian. So there wasn't a linguistic divide. 
Um, and then also in terms of the cultural understanding, Russia really understood, you know, the issues that divided Ukrainians. Um, not to mention they were inspired to to really make a difference, I think, in Ukraine uh, from their perspective, because it was such an important industrial and military um, kind of area for them. They didn't want to lose control of Ukraine. Plus, they make a ton of money uh, through corruption in Ukraine as well. So lots of interests for Russia there. And I think um, it's it's just a microcosm in many cases, uh, issue-wise, of many of the types of things that we've seen across the the West in sub subsequent years, whether that is troll farms or, you know, um, ballot stuffing campaigns or election interference in other ways. Um, we've seen that kind of repeat itself throughout uh, Europe and the West since those tactics were first tried in Ukraine. It's interesting that you talk about the Russians knowing the terrain in Ukraine. Uh, this was something we talked about uh, in a podcast with, people, with Peter Pomerantsev, uh, who also has followed the situation in Ukraine um, closely and has seen how the, the Russians have actively gone after the idea of historical reality in Ukraine. But I wonder if when they try to transfer it to an American context where they don't know the terrain as well, it comes across as, as somewhat clunky. But that might just be the early years of it. It might become much more sophisticated. There are definitely some clunky, uh, you know, early Russian ads that were bought in the United States and some clunky campaigns that uh, were easily discovered and fell flat on their face. But there's also a lot of instances where Russia very ingeniously was able to transfer online action to offline action using real, authentic American voices. And so in the, the book, I tell the story of this group called Americans Take Action, which was a left-leaning uh, progressive organization that was organizing protests against Donald Trump from the very minute that he won the election in, uh, in 2016. And um, they were essentially duped into receiving advertising money from the Russian Internet Research Agency, the infamous troll farm, um, because somebody messaged them on Facebook and said, hey, I have some ad money on my account. I see you're doing this protest. I would love to support it. And they received, I think, about $80 in ads. And that protest was one of their more, more successful protests that they ever put on. And they had no idea that they were talking to the Internet Research Agency. And we saw the same thing repeat itself with uh, the Black community, the pro-gun community in some cases. So for all of those um, silly kind of memes that had grammatical mistakes in them, we also saw some pretty ingenious mobilization of real American dissent by the Russians. And so I think you kind of have to look at it on both sides. They're not always going to hit the target exactly, but they have the resources, both human and monetary, to keep throwing that spaghetti at the wall until something sticks. Is that how you see it? Because the, the, the metaphor of the spaghetti is quite useful in this context, because $80 is not a huge amount of money. Mm -hmm. So what's the value in them giving small amounts of money like that? Is it to then eventually try to give more? Yeah, so I think um, the spaghetti metaphor is one that I've really uh, stuck to um, for a long time because a lot of people see Putin and the Kremlin as kind of this evil genius uh, operation. And, you know, they, they probably envision Putin going to content creation meetings. But in reality, um, the, the folks who are working at the IRA are, you know, 20-somethings who speak English, who understand American and Western culture, and they're paid quite well to just churn out content. 
Um, it's all about numbers and engagement. And sometimes they're going to do well and sometimes they're not. And they have to kind of game it out and see what works. And they can do that using the engagement metrics and the targeting that social media provides. And when you spend 80 bucks on something, um, it's much easier to make that go viral, to make that, you know, be amplified and to kind of see what works. If you target it at, you know, um, a radius around Washington, D.C., that's 30 miles versus 10 miles or more people going to show up to the event. Are you going to get more traction that way? And I think that's a lot of what they were doing, experimenting. And when they found, uh, you know, uh, some sort of topic that was really resonant in a specific community, as you go through the ad archive, um, from, you know, 2014 to 2016 or 17, you see that they keep coming back to those issues and those same memes over and over again, because they perform really well. I want to talk about your forthcoming book, which is called How to Be a Woman Online. And it's it's really about how gender is weaponized against women online. So I guess the first question to talk about is, is there a gendered aspect to disinformation? Yeah, absolutely. So that's actually how I first got into the entire kind of violence against women online movement. Um, I did a piece for Coda Story um, in 2017, geez, four years ago now, that looked at how Russia in particular was using gendered narratives against women in Ukraine and in Georgia, Republic of, not the state. And uh, it was pretty staggering to see how that sexualization and sexualized narrative made its way into these patriarchal societies um, where, frankly, the, they were extremely damaging narratives that said, you know, a member of parliament was going to run naked down the main street in Ukraine or that a woman had had an extramarital affair and she was a, an, an editor of a famous Georgian ma magazine and was married to um, a member of parliament there in Georgia as well. So extremely, extremely uh, damaging narratives that could have not only tanked these women's careers, but, you know, really made their personal lives difficult as well. And so I started looking at that. And then it became clear to me, you know, with that new lens that not only was this something that was happening uh, in Central and Eastern Europe, but was happening in the West as well, sometimes from within our own societies, not only against politicians, but against any woman in the public eye, uh, simply who, who dared to, you know, make her opinions heard on the Internet. Um, we are forced out of these spaces and, and disinformation is one of many tools in a toolbox of abusers and, and misogynists to push us out of the public conversation. And that your argument is that this is deliberate in some way, it's coordinated and it has that explicit aim of deterring women from participating in the public sphere or removing them if they are already in the public sphere. Yeah, absolutely. And in some cases, my own trolls and abusers have have been explicit about that in, in saying that to me. You know, they've said, if you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen or mm -hmm. uh, you're you're a good example of why Sharia law is a good thing or women shouldn't be allowed to vote. You know, they they don't want to see women uh, having strident opinions, making their voices heard in uh, in topics that are, you know, traditionally men's, whether that is sports or science or politics. And absolutely, there is coordination. In our paper for the Wilson Center, we saw how these individuals will move across platforms and so will their narratives. And you know, I've seen from my own experience, as well as through focus groups and interviews, I've conducted a, a huge amount of dogpiling when 
one high follower account will kind of put out a dog whistle against someone that doesn't explicitly violate terms and conditions of the social media platforms, but all of those followers from that high follower account then know to go and abuse that person. And it's those individual pieces of content that come uh, in high amounts over a short period of time. That's what's really, really traumatizing for an individual um, unless you know how to deal with it. And so my book not only makes the argument that, you know, this is a problem and it's deliberate, but, you know, as women, unfortunately, we need to take the extra steps to protect ourselves if we want to guard uh, our hard won, you know, public space uh, in the discourse. And I think it's something that we all need to do, unfortunately. And it's something that I do happily because I hope that it will make things easier for the women that are going to come after me. What is the extra step that you say is necessary to take? Well, there's a lot of extra steps. I mean, everything from your physical security um, in terms of, you know, protecting yourself against doxing, making sure that you are not inadvertently allowing yourself to be geolocated by posting your uh, Instagram pictures of, of dinner that you go to with your girlfriends every Tuesday night or where you walk your dog and if you show his dog tags, all, all those sorts of things that Natalia Antonova, who I know uh, is also on this episode, talks about all the time, but also um, using the tools that are available to you on the platforms, of, of which they are unfortunately quite few, uh, knowing what's available to you there, knowing how to escalate with the platforms if you need to, if you're being actively abused, knowing when to take things to law enforcement, and then also cultivating a support network of people in your field, at your employer, advocating for your employer to support you if you're undergoing any sort of trolling, because frankly, you know, this is part of many, many jobs now. And we'd like to see more employers paying for anti-doxing software for their employees, you know, mm. offering them support if they need to leave their homes because they've been doxxed, all that sort of stuff. Um, it's, it's important to think about as we uh, have this very, very online life that is not just for socializing and, and cat pictures. It's also for, you know, our careers and is an extension of our professional selves. It must be very traumatizing. I mean, I imagine you've spoken to a lot of people who have been on the sharp end of this um, online avalanche. And it must be very traumatizing to be on the receiving end of it, especially if you are young and this might be your first time, you know, facing something like this. Yeah, I think it is. And I think um, even if you're somebody who is a seasoned, uh, you know, aware person who knows that this is something that happens, and I would consider myself among those folks, when this happened to me for the first time around this time last year, uh, in the lead up to the US election, I mean, it was just all consuming for me. I couldn't, mm -hmm. I couldn't really step away from my phone. I couldn't step away from Twitter. My husband and a lot of my friends were like, just ignore the trolls. But that is the worst advice possible because it's as if you're sitting at your computer or in your office attempting to work uh, on this extension of, of your work, i.e. social media and the internet. And, and people are all around you, mostly men, leering at you, shouting at you, you know, dissecting every part of your physical appearance, um, talking about very personal aspects of your life, mm -hmm. reducing you and your work and your intellect to your gender. Um, it's, it's highly, highly 
traumatizing. And not only that, it's, it's really scary for the first time when you see that somebody has really gone through your search history yes. and is, is mm. like coming up with things from years and years ago, and you have to sign up for some sort of protection through a service like delete me or something like that. I mean, it's a scary thing. You think the next morning when you're getting ready to walk the dog, like who's going to be out there waiting for me? If I get on the Metro to go to work, is someone going to recognize me? And I've spoken to many women who have had that happen to them and who have had to file restraining orders with the police and have had very little, you know, um, very little response there. The police don't know how to handle it. They're not equipped because it's frankly not really supported through law. Mm. Um, in both the UK and the US, unfortunately, the UK is slightly better. You have the Malicious Communications Act that provides a little bit more cover for these sorts of events. And in the in the US, we're really, uh, really, you know, up up a certain uh, creek without a paddle, as I would say, if mm. I could curse on here. <laughs> which, which you can. But the, a lot of it is, I mean, even if you have this Malicious Communications Act legislation, you still find that most of the acts fall below that threshold. That's one of the primary problems. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and here in the U.S., you need some sort of physical threat in order to even bring it up with law enforcement. If you bring them a pile of tweets, they'll just say, well, they might not even be in our jurisdiction. What do you want us to do about it? Um, mm. And it's, uh, it's, it's a scary thing to have to go alone and to recognize that this is part of your work. You know, when you're publishing a new piece, when you're doing a new piece of research, when you're even just tweeting or posting a a personal photo on one of your accounts, you have to wonder how it's going to be twisted and used against you. And I think, I mean, I know from the discourse that we see on Twitter coming from certain men that men don't have that filter, right? We don't, they yeah, don't have to think twice, yeah. uh, most men anyway. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, so it's, you know, it's not only something um, that has personal and professional effects, but it has democratic effects as well. It's not just about, you know, um, speaking up and making your voices heard, but it's it's about the ripple effects from that. When you look at the abuse that Kamala Harris receives and you think about all the little girls who are, uh, you know, perhaps on social media looking up to their role model and seeing the horrible things that she receives, you have to wonder how that's going to affect their participation in politics in the future or whether they pursue a public role at all. And that's what's scariest to me. A lot of it has a has a silencing effect. I mean, if someone like Kamala Harris can, who is so protected, so insulated by, I mean, by hard power, if she can have all of this stuff thrown at her, you imagine what happens if you are further down that totem pole. Absolutely, absolutely. And even Kamala Harris, who had all of those instances of abuse that we discovered thrown at her during the election campaign, um, it took a Washington Post article for the platforms to start to take action against that content, even though it was clearly so violative of, of their terms and conditions. It's even worse uh, when you're just, you know, a person uh, in academia or a, a reporter or just a random person on the Internet. You know, you don't have that purchase. And things like rape threats. I'm told this often from my interviewees that they report rape threats to platforms like Facebook and Twitter, and they are told it is not a violation of those terms of service, which is mm. crazy to think about. The other aspect I was very interested in with your research is what you call malign creativity. Um, perhaps you can explain what, what you mean by that. But in outline, it's the use of coded language to make threats and carry out abuse online. Yeah, absolutely. So this is what we discovered was the biggest obstacle to enforcement of against gendered and sexualized disinformation online. So rather than uh, writing the word bitch, 
uh, many abusers will use, for instance, an exclamation point in place of the I in bitch, or they'll space out uh, like the C word rather than writing all four letters in, in one string, they'll put spaces between them so that artificial intelligence can't pick up on uh, on those, you know, what we call classifiers. Um, those AI systems are trained to pick up the words as they're written, not when they're written in some sort of creative way. And we see this with images too. So uh, a regular, you know, simple JPEG will be animated and turned into a GIF, or it will be cropped and the color will be changed so that it has a different hash in a hash tracking database, which is what the platforms use to identify uh, these uh, violative images. Um, and unfortunately, this, I think, belies a lack of proactivity on behalf of the platforms because they know that this stuff is happening. They know it happens with terrorist content and they're able to follow that around the internet. And it's a bit like playing whack-a-troll. But when it comes to women and other marginalized communities, they aren't really being as proactive in terms of keeping those classifiers updated in terms of reaching out to, let's say, the Harris campaign and saying, hey, what sorts of terrible things are you seeing if you want to push these forward or, or, you know, push them up the chain with us? Um, you can do so. We've not really seen that to a great extent. And certainly we've not seen that for the much lower level people who are enduring abuse online and seeing all of the malignly creative ways that abusers are, uh, are you know, targeting them. But doesn't that go to your point that the social network platforms are not actually trying that hard? I mean, the example of replacing the word I in bitch with an exclamation mark. I mean, any scammer who comes up with um, password guesses knows how to do that. Yeah, so it's, yeah. not a, it's not a particularly complicated thing to do. And yet when it yeah. comes to, as we were saying before, 51% of the population, they can't seem to figure it out. Yeah, um, I think in some ways it points to the uh, infrastructure of the platforms. The, and this came up the other day when I was in the United Kingdom testifying before the Joint Committee on Online Safety. Um, what, what is underlying this entire problem is that all of this content, this malign content, whether it's targeting women, children, or, or anyone else, um, it's, it's that they're making money off of it. The most engaging content online is often the most enraging or emotional content. And, uh, and I think that goes for abuse as well. And as much as they would like to say that they're, they're really trying to put the rights of marginalized communities first, I don't think we've seen ev any evidence besides pretty words of that so far. Mm. As, as a woman, you know, all I know is that Twitter's gotten a little bit better at hiding the offensive stuff from me. And frankly, I'd prefer to know that it's going on. <laughs> mm. So I know, you know, uh, how safe I am on any given day. Um, but, but there are no consequences for abusers. This content isn't necessarily getting demoted or removed in many cases. And these people continue to, to carry out their abusive behaviors because it's good for the platforms. I want to go back to the, the memes because the reason I was so interested in it is that it links with another topic that we've covered at the magazine, which is the, the rise of the far right. And we had, a, we had the political scientist uh, Yasmin Mujanovic and uh, the journalist Una Haidari on the podcast, and they were talking about the very same use of memes and coded language in order to discuss the far right. Mm. And it's the same thing where the language, the codes enable a kind of ironic distancing, like a pretense that what they're saying isn't really real. 
And I think that irony, as much as it is used on the far right, it's also used for gender violence. It's an essential part of the abuse to have that ironic distancing. Yeah, and I think in many cases, these are the same communities carrying out the the abuse or the violent content. Um, there's a great uh, book called uh, This Is Why We Can't Have Nice Things by Whitney Phillips that explores yeah, yeah. the quote unquote meme wars. And so if you're interested in that, I would encourage anybody who's listening to pick up that book. But um, absolutely, you know, it's it's shrouded in this idea that, oh, this content isn't real. So obviously it, it can't be violative of, of terms of service when it has a very real psychological and, and sometimes physical effect on its targets, whether those are targets of white nationalist groups or targets of gendered abuse. I wonder what you think we can do about it. I mean, you mentioned earlier, I want to go back to this, but you mentioned earlier about the, the gendered abuse of activists in Georgia. And that's something that is very prevalent in the Middle East, for example, something we've talked about at the magazine, that a lot of the smear campaigns and the abuse of female journalists and activists have this gendered component. And that has a huge impact on their lives in conservative societies like the Middle East. So I wonder what you think, apart from the apart from the attempt to legislate what do you think can be done in those communities and societies where it is so uh, so conservative and that even the like you were saying earlier the suggestion of having an extramarital affair can have real life consequences yeah one of the other uh, interviews that we did for the wilson center paper was um with yagana Razayan, the wife of jason Razayan, who has so. um dealt with a lot of this same stuff in fact still today on her instagram account she gets a lot of hateful abusive messages from iranians who think that she is a whore to the west or something like that um and in in cases like that i think this is you know, for privileged people like me living in, you know, Washington, D.C., the, the consequences are, are not nearly as dire as they are for those that are on the front lines in these extremely conservative societies. And this is where I wish we could see more care from these multi-billion dollar corporations that are just absolutely ignoring non-white, non-Western users um, mm. in the investment or lack thereof in understanding local cultures and contexts and languages, but also in protecting their accounts. So Yegi very famously had her email and Facebook accounts hacked, and then she was threatened with blackmail uh, by the, uh, the IRG. And mm. she said to me, you know, if I could change one thing, if I could wave my magic wand and change one thing, it would be that you know, I wish Facebook and Gmail did their due diligence, had protected me. And, and you know, since all of this went down, there are some extra protections for journalists and, and those that are, you know, on the front line, so to speak. You know, Gmail has its advanced protection program. Facebook is very slowly rolling out protections for, for public figures uh, that not only verify your account, but give you extra support. I'm in the process of getting verified right now. We'll see how that goes. I'm, I'm quite doubtful that it's going to be impactful on my own experience. Um, mm. but, but the truth is that they're just leaving a lot of women in really precarious situations on their own um, and leaving them open to attack. And I think, you know, if they're really about protecting free speech and empowering individuals, then they need to start really putting their money where their mouth is and protecting uh, those most vulnerable people. 
um, and in particular women in other marginalized communities and, and offering support, offering as Gmail has started to do, you know, notifications that your account seems to be being accessed by uh, government-based hackers, which is a notification many of us in the disinfo field get, or that, you know, there are um, suspicious logins or you have an influx of trolls onto your account. Do you want us to put some protections on it while we dig through this stuff? I mean, they have the ability to do that. This this can all be seen through network analysis, which we showed in our, in our Wilson Center paper as well. It's just a question of that political will and whether the, co the companies themselves want to take such a provocative stance for their most vulnerable users. Lastly, then, I wonder if, having talked so much about disinformation, having talked about online abuse, is there a way that we can talk about winning or is it just really surviving at this point? I think we're a long way from winning. Um, again, used to be a lot more optimistic about the utility of media literacy and in general information literacy. And I still think that's a huge part of the battle and we need our governments to invest a lot more in those sorts of initiatives. Um, frankly, and I don't want anyone to think that you know government mandated media literacy is, uh, education is, is coming down the pike. I'd love to see them empowering civil society organizations and libraries to do this work. Um, but we also need our leaders to be very much involved in, in this equation, not only to set the tone for the policies and set the agenda for the policies that are coming down the pike, but to actually model behavior that is based in truth. And that's where I worry. Um, that's where, you know, these, these polarizing, um, viral moment-filled hearings that we see on Capitol Hill anytime we talk about social media, that's not doing anyone any good because there's almost as much disinformation in those as there is, you know, just floating around on the internet now. So um, that's the, the gap that I think we need to close. And I was hoping January 6th would kind of spur on action or, um, a light bulb moment in the heads of some of these lawmakers. And unfortunately, I don't think that we're there yet. Um, and until then, you know, it really is up to individuals to continue to pressure the social media companies to engage very deliberately with the content that you see. Um, and, you know, to get involved if we feel passionately about it with the civil society organizations that are advocating for change in this space. Pressuring social media companies, as Nina says, is a vital part of fighting these disinformation wars. But on an individual level, you might wonder what you can do. Natalia Antonova is a journalist and investigator, an expert in online security, and the former editor of the investigations website Bellingcat. Antonova writes a weekly newsletter called Natalia Explains the Apocalypse, in which she teaches people how easily their lives can be tracked by what they post online. That use of publicly available information to track people, known as open source intelligence or OSINT, is also a tool she uses in her investigations of political groups. This combination of using OSINT in both a personal and a political context has become a bit of a hallmark of Antonova's work. I spoke to Natalia and started by asking her why open source intelligence has become so prominent as a tool of journalism and activism in just the past few years. It can be a lot of different things, but it's mostly the stuff that is sitting right there on the surface. Uh, it's non-classified information. It's information from public sources. Um, but of course, that does include um, sources that were previously not public, such as databases um, and other types of leaks. Um, 
it could be anything from flight radar information to financial records to social media posts to, you know, even online dating profiles. So it, it, it's quite, it, it covers a vast, vast uh, area of information that is uh, technically open source. Although there is some disagreement about what should be defined as open source. Like, for example, is a leaked database of uh, COVID statistics from Russia, is that necessarily open source? Is it not? Uh, there is debate within the community about it, but I tend to basically say that if it's available to you, then it's open source. And why do you think it's become so prominent as a tool for journalism and activism in the past few years? Well, I think it's because, you know, the, we started with the fact that the the internet came to be and uh, we've, you know, it allows us to organize information a certain way. But what we didn't realize for a long time is that as the pool of available information grows, uh, so do uh, connections between various pieces of information, um, which is how digital investigations came to be. Uh, for example, if you have, I don't know, if you're just a regular journalist doing a story about an oligarch um, who happens to have a daughter who's active on Instagram and she is seen on a yacht um, in the Mediterranean with some Russian official's son or something like that. You know what I mean? <clears throat> that is a tool that a journalist can then use that her Instagram in order to uh, potentially connect uh, some of her father's business dealings um, and figure out here's here's the evidence that says this person is corrupt or mm. um, well it creates kind of like a chain as well because uh, and I know I'm taking I'm, I'm I'm a very abstract thinker so I know I make it sound very abstract but basically you can you can go from some oligarch's daughter's Instagram to daddy's tax records in London and um, stumble on to something that you otherwise would not have uncovered so for me, open source is not just about the information itself. It's about the links between different information and what kind of um, conclusions we can draw based on those links. I mean, I guess the investigation, there's, there's been quite a lot actually the last few years, but I guess the one that most people will be familiar with was the, the investigation to the shooting down of flight MH17 over eastern Ukraine. That was one of the first major investigations that, that proved that OSINT could be used to point the finger of blame pretty strongly, even at a nation state like Russia. Absolutely. And the reason why this happened, why it could happen, was because there was digital evidence strewn about. Um, there were, you know, say, pictures and videos of that um, the rocket launcher being transported, right, to the site uh, where it was then shot at, where the, the crime happened, so, so to speak. So if you have all of this information just kind of lying around the digital space somebody who knows what to look for can come along and connect the dots which is what my former colleagues at bellingcat did yeah i mean you were part of that uh, the investigative website bellingcat and you used yeah, to be the I editor was, of it yeah, so years. i imagine that you are quite excited at the possibilities of open source intelligence as it pertains to journalism and activism and so on uh, very much so. I find it very exciting. Uh, I also realized that the entire process could be reverse engineered to help people um, who are perhaps targeted by stalkers or foreign intelligence. So there is a like if, if you if you have a way for seeking information, there's also ways for concealing information. Now, obviously, I'm not going to sit down with the proverbial oligarch's daughter and <laughs> 
teach her how to protect daddy uh, and right. his ill-gotten assets. But what I can do is that I frequently now advise women and men, for that matter, who are victims of online stalking, for example, on how to manage their digital footprints in such a way as to not give away their location or their travel plans and so on and so forth. So for me, it's really, it, it's kind of an information flow that goes both ways. Um, I believe that OSINT tools are very important. Um, and I also believe that they can be misused and they have been misused for years by some truly uncool people. <laughs> so um, so for me, it's, uh, I think, because I'm not so much of like a traditional journalist anymore, I look at it from the, like the perspective of, you know, personal safety and how to protect yourself if you have a clearance, for example, how to protect yourself if you have uh, sketchy Russians targeting you, which happens quite a lot, um, you know, especially if you're a member of the military or if you're like me and you just kind of like you've been poking Russia with a stick for a long time. They don't tend to like that either. So uh, in general, I think it has many applications. So there's the investigative angle and then there's also the personal safety angle, which I find fascinating. Yeah, I mean, you've, you've sort of merely leaned into that aspect, almost like a, like a poacher turned gamekeeper. Like you seem to have a much keener sense now of the potential abuses of OSINT rather than this um, this uh, uh, idea that it is always going to be something you know, that can only be used for good, only used to target nation states. Actually, you sort of turned the lens around and yeah. you're, you're directing people to, to see that actually it can be turned on individuals. It can and it has. And not everybody is scrupulous. I mean, I've had... I've had that lens turn on myself by very unscrupulous uh, and I would frankly say abusive people, including people in in, in my field. Um, so it's part of the reason why I launched my newsletter, uh, because uh, honestly, for me, the amount of regular people that get caught up in this uh, in these types of stories, um, they, they can really. Um, you know, they can really suffer. Um, and it, and, it, and there's security risks involved. Uh, for example, uh, we just ended a 20 year old war in Afghanistan. We have a lot of service members uh, who are home, who will post pictures of their friends or people they worked with in Afghanistan. And ever since this um, <clears throat> fairly botched withdrawal began, I've been going around and helping people uh, to manage their digital footprint, lock down their accounts, uh, because we, for example, do have evidence of the Taliban even before the withdrawal, years before the withdrawal, they were using certain people's Instagrams uh, and certain Instagram accounts to, um, you know, keep an eye on people they didn't like in Afghanistan. And then those people will be targeted. So that's just one example in amongst billions of examples. But that's the one that I really focused on, because, again, nobody's trying to harm anybody by posting a picture of their buddy in Kabul, but of course, now that the security situation has shifted, you have to understand that that information that is out there could be used to kill someone. Mm. And that's something I think that perhaps not everyone has has thought all the way through. But you seem to be very aware of it. I saw the post about the uh, about the uh, uh, the Taliban on the on your Instagram. I wondered though. I mean, the Taliban is a good example because there's two aspects to this: the way the lens can be turned onto individuals. One is just other individuals, stalkers and so on, which we'll get to. But the other, I think, is about 
like the targeting of nation states or large groups like the Taliban. I, I wrote a, um, a column for the magazine talking about how this new technology and techniques like OSINT, actually they entrench power structures because nation states can utilize them better and at a larger scale than just individuals and activists. Absolutely. Look at what Saudi Arabia has done. Um, look at NSO group. Um, there's... Um, uh, there's just so many ways in which this technology can be, uh, you know, it, it, combining with the, you know, with the skills necessary to um, find people or to track people. Uh, there's, you know, a, a nation state is, you know, has the money to do that sort of thing. Um, and it can have some, you know, devastating, uh, devastating consequences for the people that are being targeted. I had a really soft version of that when I was living in Moscow, where it dawned on me eventually that I was giving away my location on Instagram uh, to people who, you know, didn't like me very much. Who maybe kept a file on me, maybe several files, and um, <clears throat> you know that uh, you know I wasn't murdered. Obviously, um, I was just kind of mildly harassed, uh, but not everyone is so lucky. And you can see examples of that um, in targeted assassinations. We even, I believe there's evidence that, you know, the, the Skripals, the poisoning case um, in, in Britain, how did they find the guy? It was, I think it was his daughter's cousin that had posted something on either Facebook right. or Contacta that helped Russian military intelligence. Fine. I mean, you see even a couple of degrees of separation can lead back to you. I mean, in the in the face of that, given that, for example, a nation state like Russia can utilize so many resources, do you think there is anything that individuals can do? Well, there's quite a bit that you can do. Um, I mean, one thing you have to understand is that nation states are also like very unwieldy in how they adapt to the times. Uh, they have a lot of bureaucracy that they go through. Uh, even the Saudis have bureaucracy. Uh, and you just have to, um, you know, um, you have to be aware of what's going on around you. You have to uh, take calculated risks. Um, I would say, you know, like, don't be paranoid because paranoia is useless. It just kind of drains you of energy. But certainly, like, be aware that this stuff is possible. Be aware that sometimes your phone can be hacked without you clicking on anything. You know, like, this is something new that people have been dealing with, but you know, this technology has been around for a while. Uh, mm -hmm. I think NSO made it famous, but um, in general, uh, we kind of knew about it years ago. And on the one hand, it's okay to be cognizant of it and to kind of, you know, read the tech news, be aware of what's going on. Um, if you're, even if you're just a regular person, you know, what if you have a bad divorce and your ex decides to hack some of your accounts for whatever reason, I'm just saying like two-factor authentication, probably a good thing. Obviously, mm -hmm. as the threat evolves, so do our tools for coping with the threat. So um, people have to, you know, just be, stay on top of it, uh, stay on top of uh, the technology, how it's evolving, who's using it, who can use it. Um, I would also say that, you know, look out for the older people in your life because they can be really easy pickings for mm. whether it's for hackers or for scammers. You know, I don't know if you saw my newsletter, but one of the cases that really touched me last year that I worked on, I think it was either late last year or early this year, it was an older man who was scammed out of thousands of dollars by this woman pretending to be uh, a female service member who had PTSD or whatever. And I was able to really easily prove to his family that 
you know, she had lied about her deployment dates. There was no deployment dates, you know, and mm -hmm. I didn't even have to pull her. I didn't have to pull her records. I didn't have to look for a, a DD-214, her, you know, uh, that those records are available, but just going by Facebook, I could prove that she was a fraud. And that sounds like silly maybe to you or me, but to somebody who's like in their early eighties or late seventies and they're cut off from their loved ones because of a pandemic, it can be really easy for them to fall at prey, not just to like a, a government, you know, cause mm, yeah, no, just to individuals. Yeah. Just to like a random individual. Um, and it's just, it's a good idea to look out for the people in your lives who might be more susceptible. And it's a good idea to, you know, take care of your kids and let them know that this is possible. I have conversations with my son every day about that stuff, unfortunately, and also just have a sense of humor about it because guess what, you know, if your stuff gets hacked, it gets hacked. Um, mm. It happens. It's going to happen to more and more of us. It shouldn't be a big deal. Like I recently went through this, it was like a few months ago, somebody was like, and if somebody really mad about a foreign policy article I had written, I think that's what it was. But they wrote in saying that, oh, you know, well, I know one of your exes. I have your nudes. If, if you don't, if you don't delete your Twitter, I'm going to publish them. And I was like, you know what? I'm pretty sure I look good in all my nudes. Let's go. I don't care. You know, I don't care. Like, what, what am I going to do? I'm not going to delete my Twitter. I'm a professional. I need my Twitter to connect with my audience. Uh, what the hell are you going to do? I was like, fine, publish them. I don't care. But this, I, I want to talk about the move. I was going to ask you later, but let's get into it now because I do think you have this whole newsletter, and it's dedicated to making people aware of the danger um, from people who are using, you know, fundamentally the same techniques against against individuals. And as much as it, I find it so interesting, I've also noticed that you you're very playful in the way that you talk about these topics. I mean, you just talked about it now, you know, in regard to what, frankly, a lot of people would consider to be very serious. I mean, the leaking of private images, but yeah. you take it in a playful way. You joke about it. I've seen on your Substack, on your Twitter that, you know, you make jokes about your cat. You talk a bit about your private life. And I thought that playfulness is absolutely deliberate, I imagine. Yeah. Um, well, it's always been kind of part of my online persona as, as far as you know, everybody has a persona, right? And this is mine. But also I find that um, you can connect to a much wider audience if you have a sense of humor and you're playful and you play fun games with your audience and you approach them as a human being who literally says, hey, I'm just, you know, I'm like any other girl. Here's a picture of me with my beautiful girlfriend in this diner. And here's how easily some freak can geolocate us, right? Uh, because, you know, if you come out there and you're very serious and you're very, um, you know, you're kind of hammering people over the head uh, with the facts. Sure, you can reach some people. But in my case, I wanted to reach the people who genuinely don't care mm. uh, or who haven't, who don't feel that this applies to their lives, but who will see a picture of two girls in a diner just kind of like goofing around and then will go, wait a minute, that like, this is something that could happen to me. Mm -hmm. um, I also, I have a pretty, pretty large segment of my audience now is veterans and members of the US military. And uh, I'm often told by people like in leadership positions that like, hey, like, I really can't get my guys to pay attention to this stuff. But like, I sent them, uh, you know, your newsletter and you post all these pictures you know with cleavage joking about your private life and all of a sudden it clicks for them and they're like paying attention for the first time mm, and instead of it's very relatable yeah it's relatable and instead of it being a boring brief it's just like well here's a story like i don't know if you saw in my newsletter once again uh, a background babe was this 
very famous catfish who took a lot of active duty people for a ride with her Twitter persona. And, you know, when this happened, uh, when all these people were caught up in the scandal, this woman who was clearly impersonating someone else, she was a total fraud. People might have given her sensitive information. We don't know the full scope of it. Perhaps we never will. When this happened, you'll have a bunch of leaders uh, take to the internet and be like, well, you know, just don't talk to girls online. It's like, what are you, right. you going to say? Yeah. How are you going to say that to a bunch of 20 year old Marines? Right. Don't talk to what girls online. What world are you in? Yeah, it exactly. It doesn't, it's not applicable. I think my, like, I believe that in my capacity as, you know, as, as a journalist and as an investigator, what I want is I want to be like, let's be realistic and let's give you realistic goals and let's give you content you can relate to that will then inspire you to be safer and to maybe make some better choices. But this, actually, this, Natalia, is something that I've really noticed about your your uh, posting because you are very careful about your social media. You've said that you keep your favorite locations off social media. But even so, your social media is still quite personal. I mean, you, you post, like you say, images of yourself and your girlfriends and um, pictures of your son and so on. And I thought that the reason you, I imagine you're doing that is you're trying to set an example that it is possible to live a normal life and still be safe, that you don't just have to shut everything down, come off social media, and, and that's the only way to stay safe. You're trying to show people that actually you can reclaim your right to be on social media and post what you like, and still there's a way to be safe. Have I interpreted that correctly? Yeah, I think it's absolutely true. I want people, uh, you know, to live a healthy lifestyle. If you're able to live a healthy lifestyle that's free of paranoia, that's great. Our world is stressful enough as it is. I think we're less safe when we're constantly stressed. Um, and in my position, I'm somebody who, like most people, does not have a sensitive job. Um, and obviously, I do have, I've done a fair bit of work that has made me a target. Uh, but that doesn't mean that I can't kind of, you know, juggle, juggle those aspects of my life and still have fun and derive pleasure from social media and connect to different people uh, on social media and meet people, <laughs> you know, like I've tended to date a lot of people off Twitter, for example, who are not like scary and like awful people, but just like very normal, cool, cool guys, for example, that, you know, and it's fine. Um, there are some bad people out there. There's always going to be dangers. Um, there are consequences. Uh, and this is something that I probably I'm going to have to talk more in depth at some point about the consequences of what it means when you have certain men, including men in your field, fixate on your social media in unhealthy ways and then try to kind of punish you for perhaps being unavailable to them to um, <clears throat> to say it in a really indirect manner. But um, in general, I, I just I think that it's really good to kind of just live a normal life uh, or strive toward a normal life anyway. Um, I think it's good to, um, I don't know, just like, because we're, so, we're bombarded with information constantly. And I think in the pandemic, it took on a really sinister aspect. And this is when we, we got this phrase, doom scrolling, right? Uh, which is completely correct. You are always doom scrolling and the news is always worse and worse and worse. Mm. But my belief is that you can't help other people and you can't save the world if you don't commit to helping yourself and saving yourself. And a big part of that is, yeah, you know, having fun and making healthy choices and trading cute cat pictures. Like, I'm sorry, I've been called unprofessional for trading it cat pictures. I'm like, you know, life is so depressing uh, that, you know, why should we cat pictures? Yeah, why shouldn't we just post goofy pictures of our cats? Uh, it doesn't mean that we're... <laughs> well, you know, I don't know if you've uh, seen a, a handful of posts about cats on our uh, 
on our Instagram. There's definitely uh, there's definitely a segment of the magazine which is very heavily into cats. So yeah. they will be 100% with you. Exactly. You just have to find what you like, find um, what makes you happy and do it and show it to other people and share it with them. But also be, you know, be careful. That's basically my advice to, you know, people who read my newsletters, my advice to my clients is that there's there's always like a healthy balance you can strike. Um, it's different when you're in a sensitive job. It becomes very different, but that's like a different aspect of reality. Well, let's talk a bit about the geolocation challenges because I think those are those are very intriguing because they're so they're not just colorful. They also try to teach people something serious. So perhaps you yeah. can explain to the audience what they are. Um, so generally speaking, I will post a picture of myself or a picture given to me by a friend or a colleague, um, and I will ask people, uh, "Can you tell me where this was taken? What else do you notice about it? What kind of story does it tell?" Yeah, you know, let's go. Just give me all of your ideas about this photo. And then I usually there is a deliberate kind of narrative that is built in around the photo. So before I post a photo, I will sit there and think about what I want people to find uh, and how they might approach it. Sometimes, however, I've had my readers really surprise me with their conclusions. And that also becomes part of the story. But generally, people will respond, and I'll interact with them sometimes. Sometimes I won't. It depends on what kind of game we're playing. And then in a few days, I will publish a full report highlighting some of the most important responses. So people have now been doing it for over a year since I started these games. And they've been having a lot of fun, but also learning a lot. And it's really... Um, it's really just rewarding to me when people come to me and say, hey, like you really changed my mind about social media. Or they will... You know, just the other day, somebody posted a, there was like a, a, a Russia watchers group where somebody posted a picture just asking playfully, well, where am I? And within minutes, the the guy knew and she asked him, how did you know? And he's like, well, you know, because Natalia, I've, I've been following Natalia's Twitter. It's how I know. I figured it out. She gave me the tools to do it. So it's just, um, it's a way for us to think about personal safety once again, because being geolocated sometimes means being placed in danger. Uh, but it also helps us to think about, you know, like fun detective stuff, right? And the investigative aspect of it. Uh, there's so much investigative work that I've done, other people have done that is so depressing and awful. You know, I've done a lot of work on war crimes this year, for example, wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy, uh, that it's really nice to just kick back and post a picture from a restaurant and then have people figure out the restaurant from the menu layout. Where I've blurred, oh, I that one. Yeah. I've blurred the freaking menu, but the yeah, layout, the layout you, is... can, you can figure it out uh, because the layout and like the bar, the shape of the bar, and that's it. So it it that's... is quite astonishing what people can discover. You posted a photo of yourself at an airport, mm -hmm. and you asked your followers, I think in the Midwest somewhere, and you asked your followers to identify the airport, and the way they did it was by noticing the livery on the on the tail of one of the planes in the background yeah. and then cross-referencing that to a particular plane. And they found the exact airport, the exact terminal, the time of the day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and it's then, quite frightening in a way. It's frightening and it's really cool. Uh, it's why I try not to do it uh, live. You know, I tried to like wait a few hours before I post a picture like that. In that case, I didn't, you know, I was on a layover. We were actually in Dallas um, and I had just talked to my friend the night before and he was saying, well, you know, airports in America are so bland and generic. Nobody will find you if you post a picture like that. And I was like, how much do you want to bet me that they will? And it took them five minutes, 
five minutes. Has there ever been a newsletter challenge that hasn't worked the way they haven't been able to find you? No. Every single one of them has worked. Um, I think the longest one um, took about an hour and a half. And it was when I posted a very, very like random parking lot. It was actually right outside of a Motel 6, but you couldn't even see the Motel 6 in the picture. And there's like a shed and then like a tower in the background and a partial a partial sign for like a trailer park. And I had been stranded in Newport News, Virginia, after our tire had busted when we were driving to Cape Charles. And uh, we were staying in this awful motel. The sink had flooded. We were just like, it was so funny. And in the morning, I was like, okay, let's do this. Let's let's post a challenge. And uh, people were like, no way. No way can anybody find this. And um, it took, the first person got it in an hour and a half. And then the second person got it like 12 minutes later. So yeah, um, it's it's basically anything is doable. Do you ever feel that that... I mean, of course, if you're posting about these things, you necessarily have to be hypervigilant about it. You're sort of aware of what you're posting and what you need to blur and so on. Do you find that that hypervigilance affects you in any way? Well, I'm a generally hypervigilant person. Uh, I uh, was born in Ukraine and I grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina. But before uh, we moved there, when I was a little girl, I had been exposed to a lot of violence, including mob violence in Ukraine is one of the reasons that we left. So I was diagnosed with... Uh, chronic post-traumatic stress when I went to college, which was a big surprise to me because I thought you could only get that from a war zone. But as it turned out later, it was people can get it from all sorts of things. So I'm hypervigilant by nature. Um, and I do a lot of work on myself. I do EMDR. Uh, I have, you know, therapists and I take medication and I really manage my condition very well. But one of the things that allows me to do, of course, is to channel this condition into a kind of educational experience for everybody who follows me. Mm. Um, so the hypervigilance, I think it's a very, um, I think, kind of organic at this point part of who I am. Mm. But I can, um, by doing games and by, you know, just doing educational activities such as seminars or talks or whatever, I'm able to take that and, um, A, put a positive spin on it and B, hopefully maybe prevent people from having the experiences that I had as a child, you see, because when you were, you, you couldn't be protected at a very young age and very bad things happened to you. You grow up with this mindset. Okay. Well, how do I, how do I try to make sure that there's less of this in the world? So I think that's one of my goals. I think it always has been an overarching goal of mine. And obviously I believe that, you know, we can't always be in control. Um, I think that's part of like the hypervigilant mindset is that, you always have to be in control. You must be in control. It's actually very exhausting. But I think that a better way of looking at it is having agency. Mm. And, you know, part of what I do is allowing people to reclaim some agency over their digital footprints and be more aware of them and maybe have less nasty surprises. And also, you know, as we keep circling back, also just have a sense of humor about being online because it is ridiculous. And if you don't laugh, then what's the point? you must have had a lot of contact with people who have emailed you and told you experiences that they've had, some of which I imagine um, were, you know, quite dark. Is that something that you find? I mean, I imagine that you, you quite like to have that interaction with people because you feel like you're helping, but at the same time, it might be, it must be quite a lot to take on emotionally. Yeah, it can be. Um, uh, a lot of my uh, clients who have had stalkers, for example, I feel really strongly for them. And um, <clears throat> it can be difficult. 
Um, it's why I ask people to support the newsletter. I'm like, I can't do this for free guys. You know, I, it's publicly available to all, but I'm like pitch in if you can, because guess what? Like I'm trying to do public good here, but also I need to be able to like step back and like take care of myself, of course. Uh, but I think honestly, the worst is, is the stuff you really can't, uh, affect. So if you have a client or if someone writes into you and you're helping them with a personal problem, um, you're, you know, you're helping and you're interacting and, it's actually quite positive, I think, in most cases, when it's something like a video of a, you know, a gruesome murder in Ethiopia, like uh, some of the other stuff that I've done and have investigated. Obviously, there's less agency involved. Like you can certainly identify some features of the landscape. Like actually, my former colleagues identified the landscape. I had realized among those videos, there was a woman, uh, a female service member present at some of these killings, which also narrows down uh, the potential unit. So you kind of you have this sense of, okay, maybe these people will be eventually found and prosecuted as they sometimes are, but it's also very hard because you couldn't save anyone. Uh, and you know, and then it's not your job. You, you can't think of it in those terms. You really can't, but mm. does it ever kind of weigh on you? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, that's part of the game. It's a version of what war correspondents go through that they sort of, they're on the outside, but they're right in the middle of it. And, and there's naturally this feeling of, well, I could just reach out and help. Yeah, there's a lot of, I think, secondary trauma involved in a lot of this type of work, for sure. I think it's difficult to think about these topics without also thinking about the gendered aspect of it. And you talk a lot about the threat, particularly to women online. Uh, you wrote about the the murder of Mercedes Moore, yeah. an Instagram model in, for those who don't know, it's an Instagram model in Texas who was strangled to death by a stalker. And the stalker used basically the same techniques that, that you do in your work, that OSINT uses, to locate her. Yeah. That kind of violence, of course, it affects both genders equally. But Sorry, not equally. It affects both genders. But it is very gendered. It affects one disproportionately. And mm -hmm. so I wonder if sometimes as much as, you know, men might see the potential dangers, they don't really feel it as viscerally as women might because they're not getting the same avalanche of comments online, the avalanche of uh, pictures, let's say, uh, that, uh, that are sometimes sent to them on Instagram and Twitter. Yeah, it's true. I think um, when men want to understand why this can be a problem, I just ask them, please um, adopt a female avatar and a female name for a few days and just see the way people change and how they uh, respond to you and how they treat you and what they say. Um, and how do they change? Why don't you tell us a bit about that? How do they change in your experience? Well, it, and, you know, I've, and I've always just been a woman online, so but I just, I always get, you know, the usual, I have a I deal with a lot of sexual harassment, obviously. I've dealt um, with, you know, people derailing my my life and my work by weaponizing my social media against me, you know, because they were um, fixated on me. Um, I've had, you know, just men be inappropriate in all kinds of ways, not just random trolls, but actually, you know, again, men in my field be inappropriate and think that it's okay for some bizarre reason. Um, I also have had a lot of positive interaction with men online. Um, you know, I don't have like, I'm a typical modern woman in a sense that like, if I date, it's going to be uh, on a dating app, or it's going to be in a from a circle of people that I kind of know, so similar interests, so it's going to be like Instagram, for example, or uh, Twitter, for that matter. Um, actually, just, you know, really great guy I met on Twitter just like flew in and we had like a great weekend just like hanging out DC and like I showed him the town and it was great it was wonderful um obviously he's not he's not a serial killer or anything like that 
but uh, in general, I think that like most of my experiences are really positive. Uh, but there's always that percentage where it's not, and you have to be aware of that percentage, and you have to be aware that there's like a difference between like I don't know like the trolling aspect, like the way women are trolled. It's almost so normalized that like we kind of just roll with it now. I barely even notice it. I don't know if you see. I, I will. I will tend to like troll people back. Um, that's my strategy, at least. But uh, but there's also you know there's also there's different levels to it, right? Because there's trolling, then there's threats. Um, there was a guy who read about me in a book earlier this year, and he found my address. This is my new address, so it's a bit more difficult to find. But he found it, and he sent me like this letter about how you know he wants to talk to me and get to know me because of what he read in this book. And I'm just like. I'm sure he probably wasn't even thinking how this appears to a woman, but for me, it's like, oh, I, I have your address. What's up? I, I fear you might be giving him. I saw that po that uh, post, but I fear you might be giving him rather too much credit. I mean, somebody who does that, especially in the modern age when it's so easy to find your email and just send you a message, for him to go looking for your unlisted address rather suggests yeah. you probably don't want him to fly in and meet you. Well, you know, it's just um, I think that there's. There are, in my experience, there are a lot of men with interpersonal problems who are online, right? And the problem is getting worse. You can look at statistics. Men are having sex less, especially younger men. And our society is becoming more atomized in part because we have all these awesome digital tools that kind of connected to, connect us to each other, but not really. And also there's the fact that like, if you don't, if you're meeting people organically and the world outside you're meeting them organically if you're meeting them on apps guess what you're mostly meeting photogenic people right a lot of people who would otherwise surprise you and charm you and make you notice them you're not swiping right on those people because uh, the way that these apps are created they're created for photogenic people so obviously i'm really mad at anybody who would stalk me who would harass me people who've, you know, gotten me fired and so on and so forth from various jobs over the years, because it's like, oh, if I can't have you, then you can't have this job. Uh, that has happened to me. Absolutely. And I'm livid about that still. But here's the thing. Uh, there's also this aspect of like the mental health of our society, I think, has really been affected by all of these changes and this move to a more digitized uh, existence. And there's definitely a lot of men in particular who are just you know, kind of out there by themselves and nobody's teaching them how to interact with women. And so they band into these little like hate groups, whether they become just outright like hateful insults or they're just kind of lonely and weird. And they sit around sending typed letters to random lady journalists. Um, not all of them. In fact, most of them, they're, uh, they're not going to be serial killers or rapists or anything like that. But, you know, it's just like, I feel bad for them, but I also... I haven't, I need to have a boundary there. You know, like I can't, I'm not mother Teresa. I can't save all these people from themselves. No, just, yeah. you didn't, you didn't mention that the letter was typewritten. I fear oh. that's another, that's another red flag. Natalia, yeah, I gotta yeah. tell you. No, it was, I mean, I, I, it chilled me to the bone when I got it. I just stood there uh, in my hallway, just looking down on it, thinking, oh my God, who does this? But you know, someone mm. did. So Someone did. Mm. Um, I want to move uh, into the, the geopolitics of it because mm -hmm. you you know Russia very well. You were editor-in-chief mm -hmm. of the Moscow News. Um, the, the newspaper that was actually essentially shut down by the government yeah. seven years ago now. Yeah. And I wonder how you felt living through that moment, the sort of the, the this long purge of the Russian media landscape, which is still ongoing. 
um, it really sucked. <laughs> there's, there's no, there's no real poetic way to even talk about it. It just really, really sucked. Um, because I had come to Russia when president Medvedev was president. It was kind of felt like a different time. People thought there maybe was a kinder, gentler Russia emerging. And I was very young. I do have, you know, Russian roots, especially on my mom's side. So, um, her parents are Russian and she grew up mostly in Ukraine, but she was born in the Far East and she lived in St. Petersburg for a while. So I had all that heritage and a big part of coming to Russia and working there was reconnecting with my heritage. And then a few years into it, I was like, oh my God, first of all, I'm a complete and total foreigner to these people. You know, I'm Ukrainian American. I might as well be Satan. Right. Um, and second of all, it's just, I just realized that this kind of like brief thaw under President Medvedev was just that it was a thaw and it, it got some investments for them and it kind of helped them build up this Pachemkin village of like, I don't know, uh, prosperity and uh, like uh, innovation. They were big into innovations back then. And um, it was just like this Russia resurgent. Um, and it, it just, and then it just kind of, they got bored with it. And, you know, Putin always had different aims. You know, his aim is to, uh, stay in power and, you know, keep the people in his little clans, um, happy and, and wealthy. Um, and that's all that matters really. So the agenda changed and, uh, you know, the newspaper I was in charge with. So like the, 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 the history of it, right. The Moscow news is Russia's oldest language newspaper newspaper. Right. It was coming out under Stalin and it was a, basically a propaganda tool, but it was staffed with these idealistic people who had been like me in a way. They came to the Soviet Union thinking, oh, my God, it's the worker, worker's paradise. Most of them were purged or disappeared in camps, by the way. Mm. Um, some Americans among them, too. Um, and then it was propaganda for a while. You know, the paper kept getting shut down or revived, shut down or revived. Uh, my uh, then boss, Tim Wall, had been poached from the Moscow Times to kind of like be in charge of uh, editorially independent Moscow news, which he was, um, you know, because it was a government funded newspaper, but we talked, you know, we, we, we trashed the government all the time. Well, trashed, you know, we criticized it. Um, but um, you know, after Tim left and I was, I was put in charge of the paper, I realized that something was off, you know, because I have a big mouth, as you might've noticed. And, um, People started coming up to me at parties, talking to me about my editorials that I had written. And they were like, wow, you're so brave for, for saying that. And I would be like, what do you mean? <laughs> Why is this brave? <clears throat> what I'm saying is common sense. Like I said, hey, you shouldn't uh, forbid Americans from adopting Russian children, for example. Um, and I came out with a really angry editorial about that. And people were like, oh, run for cover. It's, it's over, you know. Um, it wasn't over. But <clears throat> in general, as the vector changed, as Russia became more repressive because of the protests you know the 2011 2012 protest cycle in russia really scared the russian government uh they saw popular support for people like navalny and other figures who hated them and hated their corruption and they were like oh, oh time to clamp down so they began clamping down and we were some of the first victims because in our case it was easy if you have a government structure you don't really have to like you know launch a prosecution you don't have to go to court you just say Hey, well, we're redirecting this money elsewhere. We're shutting you guys down. Uh, we are dissolving this organization. Uh, have a great day, everyone. And, you know, cheers to you. In our case, uh, the newspaper they legally did not dissolve it for a while. We were still like going to work. <laughs> and it was really weird. We were reporting on our own demise, basically. <laughs> yeah. And uh, just a 
you know, and then one day, months into it, I was whisked upstairs to a colleague's office. Um, and she said, look, uh, we recognize that you're like a young mother and you can definitely keep your work visa. You can stay like, you can keep your job, Natalia. You can keep your staff at the paper. We just need you to, um, we need you to publish what the Russian government needs you to publish. And I said, so what you're telling me is editorial independence is over. And they were like, yeah, I mean, it's kind of obvious, right? So I was like, okay, well, let me talk to my team. So I went downstairs and I said, we all have to quit right now. So we did. Uh, and that was that. You know, um, what do you think the broader goal is? I mean, as I was saying, this this slow disintegration of the Russian media landscape has been going on for years and years. What do you think the goal of the Kremlin is in doing that? Just to hold on to the, its money and its assets. You know, it's nothing, nothing personal, as they say. I mean, everything uh, revolves around money. Uh, it, Russia is run by a small clutch of very wealthy people who think of themselves as demigods in many cases. I mean, honestly, you talk to some of these people, not even like the people themselves, but like the people who work for them. And they consider themselves to be like above humanity and like their citizens are subhuman. It's actually really weird. It's almost like, it's like, I don't know. I can't, it's like, I wouldn't even say that it's royalty. I don't know what they think of themselves as. They think that they saved Russia and they really don't, they have a really out like, I think it's like the problem of like lack of accountability being a progressive disease. These people have been in power for so long. They're so wealthy. They're so coddled. You know, their kids go to the best schools in London. They have the hottest mistresses. You know what I mean? They've really built up mm. a cult around themselves and they've really kind of fallen for their own hype. Mm. Uh, and the goal is simple. Just, you know, just keep extracting natural resources and keep their prestige and keep their, their money and their castles and their mistresses and minks. That's all it is, really. There's no ideological goal per se. I think Putin does have some. Putin wants to leave his mark on the world. You know, this is why we have, um, you know, we have Wagner now and other paramilitary groups and we have them moving in Libya and we have their other activities in Africa and Venezuela and so on. So Putin wants to be remembered as this great statesman who like put Russia back on the map and he does have a mindset of like, you know, the great game is back, basically, according to him. He wants to compete with uh, the the Brits in particular and the Americans, obviously. Um, but in general, you know, besides this man's ambitions and besides the ambitions of men like him, there's also just the fact that they just they just care about money and um, any kind of honest reporting threatens their revenue streams, to put it in very broad but unfortunately accurate terms. So this is the end goal. It's just money and power. But some of it is that they are exporting the disinformation that they foisted upon Russia. They're now exporting that to, well, particularly to, to the US. It's not, it's not merely that they're sort of seeking to hold on to Russia itself. They now sort of export their way of thinking and their way of dealing with the public to other parts of the world. Of course. And, you know, I think uh, I think a big part of this is simple elite convergence. Uh, wealthy people disconnected from society, uh, hyper wealthy people, especially uh, they can relate to wealthy people disconnected from society here uh, or anywhere else. Um, you know, you can see like why like why are so many of these Trump cronies so in love with the Putin regime? It's because they can all relate. They like parties. They like money. Um, they like expensive drugs, they like nice cars, and they see themselves as players uh, in a big game. And, you know, I think that hundreds of years ago, it was, the world was less connected. So it was kind of hard for elites of different societies to relate to each other. But nowadays, it's like, 
you know, everybody has an iPhone and everybody buys the same luxury goods and they all want to go to Mars now or, or to the moon or whatever. And I think Elon Musk is going to save them all. You know, so I feel like part of it is just that rich people in different countries are very similar. And um, and talking about specifically talking about the hyper rich here. And there's lots of people willing to, so there's lots of people today in the United States, for example, who are absolutely willing to sell out to Putin and have a society that's much closer to the society that Russians have if they think they can benefit personally. Um, So, you know, it's not only though, sorry to interrupt you, but it's not only the um, the elite that you're talking about, there's a lot of fetishization of the the strength of the Putin image among, let's say, lower order Trump operatives, the kind of people on what you might think of as the hard right. They sort of fetishize this martial strength. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of these people come from like a strict father mentality where they're most comfortable, not with a like a nurturing parent, but with someone who's like daddy, right? And who's strict with you. But daddy, because daddy's strict, he will also keep you safe. And, you know, I think democracy produces such enormous amounts of squabbling among people. And, you know, when we're practicing democracy, we have to, like, take other people into account. Other people can be annoying. Uh, let's face it, you know. And I think that also we haven't had a big war in a while. The United States has been a war for years, but, you know, it's mostly our yeah. military. Like, the yeah. the regular people are not really affected by it. And, and I think it's true of Europe as well. And I think that we're just kind of, um, you know, we're in this mindset where we're beginning to forget that these types of strongmen um, form brittle regimes that ultimately fall and result in bloodshed. Mm. Uh, you know, when we're not thinking about it, we're just thinking about, hey, Putin gets stuff done. You know, he gets stuff done. I was just talking to a friend about this the other day. You know, so many Americans have this image of him as also like a cool masculine guy who was like a hitman for the KGB. And I have to sit there and be like, guys, he was a desk jockey. He was yeah, a desk exactly, jockey. Exactly. The guy was sitting in an office for 15 years. Exactly. Yeah, his nickname, his nickname in, uh, in the KGB was Mul. It means moth. A moth is something that's pale and it hovers. He's a pale hovering moth. That is literally like cool guy Putin. Um, so, you know, it's just, I think there's lots, there's lots, there's so much, so many aspects to this that we could talk about forever, yeah. but it's one of them. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, the whole fetishization of him, you're right. It's not just based on the, the military strength of Russia, its involvement in other countries. It's also based on the idea of him himself. And, and as you say, something of a kind of father figure mentality. I, I wanted to uh, talk to you lastly about uh, Alexei Navalny, mm-hmm. because I thought he's a good case study in a way for the things we've discussed today. He's been the object of disinformation campaigns, and he's also used OSINT tools to expose uh, Putin's wealth and the inner circle. But he's he's quite a polarizing figure in some way because of his history of nationalism. And a lot of the way that Russian propaganda works is by flooding flooding the truth with these contradictory narratives, and it makes it difficult to work out who the real Navalny is. I wonder what your views on him are now, because you've written in the past that Navalny is no saint, but that as a dissident, he doesn't have to be. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I still hold the same views. I don't think dissidents should be saints. I think, you know, uh, we have very immature political discourse in some ways. I think social media contributes to that, which is why we want very simple stories of like sinners and saints, but it doesn't quite work that way. Um, when Navalny was first getting involved in politics, a lot of people saw nationalism as a healthy alternative to Putinism. Um, and it wasn't necessarily because they were, you know, people filled with seething hatred of the other, but because there was lots of demographic changes happening in Russia, 
um, you know, lots of labor migrants and so on, a very contentious relationship with Chechnya and how that war ended. And people were looking at it and saying, well, if we want alternatives to Putinism, what do we go with? Um, <clears throat> and obviously, I think that's the wrong alternative. I don't think that Russia should be on that path at all. Um, I think Navalny is someone who also recognized that. Um, but uh, I can see um, how, you know, he has evolved um, as, as a leader. Um, and I can see that, you know, he's somebody who's really, truly willing to die for his country and for his beliefs. Uh, and so is his wife, you know, Yulia is a ride or die type of individual. She's very much, um, you know, a true believer in that sense. And yeah, true believers can be scary. Um, but you know, he's got, um, he's got a backbone, he's got principles. Um, and I think that this is what makes him so dangerous to the Putin regime because everybody knows that they don't have any backbone. People can lionize Putin and say nice things about him, but people who work for Putin, like there's a reason why Russians hate like all of their local administrations, their, their cops, um, their mayors. Um, there is absolutely no trust in like the meat of the system, right? The middle managers, because it's all rotten, it's all corrupt and all the good people have left or are leaving or don't want to be involved in politics anymore. So in, in that kind of uh, environment against that landscape, a figure like Navalny is extremely dangerous because he actually has principles mm -hmm. and he says, Hey, corruption is bad. And here's why. And it, uh, with wealth inequality as it is in Russia, we see, we know that it's a huge national security risk, right? Because when it's that bad, when the disparities are that bad, when such a small group of people control such a vast amount of resources, it creates resentment and it ultimately creates instability. And I think they know this, the people in charge, they do know this and they know why Navalny is so dangerous uh, to them. Um, having said all that, you know, again, I don't agree with nationalist views. I think nationalism is really scary and repugnant, um, but um, <clears throat> what's going to happen to him now? Will he evolve? Will he be allowed to evolve? Is he going to even survive? Um, I think that remains to be seen. Um, I do think that, you know, in general, it's a good idea to not hero worship our dissidents, whether they're in Russia and Zimbabwe and America, you know, like have a healthy approach to them. They're, they're human beings too. Mm. Uh, you don't need to create legends and myths out of them. Just think of them as people who are trying to change something like Navalny is with corruption. And for that, they're paying with their lives essentially. So, you know, maybe just scale, scale back the hero worship and just understand why this person is important, I would say. The last thing I want to talk about is about consequences. And it's not only Navalny, but Navalny is an example of this because the, he's not only the object of disinformation campaigns, he's also the subject to hard power detention. He's actually in jail. Yeah. And I wonder if when we think about disinformation and we think about the ability of OSINT to conduct investigations, are there actually serious consequences at the end of that? Has Russia really suffered uh, serious consequences for shooting down MH17. The the New York Times did, uh, uh, you know, an OSINT investigation into Khan Shehun in Syria. But at the end of it, did the Assad regime face consequences? So I wondered what your thoughts are lastly about that, about the way that these techniques can actually end up causing some change in the real world and bringing about consequences. Well, you know, I think that there's targeted sanctions that have caused distress for a lot of Russian officials who 
you know, have daughters who would really like to go shopping in Milan and they can't right now, <laughs> you know, not to bring it all back to basics, but these people really care about money. They care about prestige. Also in the case of Russia in particular, most Russian officials, like uh, they'll beat their chest and say they're patriots, but they prefer to stash their money abroad. They prefer to stash their kids abroad. They know their kids are safer elsewhere. Um, so of course, to them, there are consequences when any kind of targeted sanctions are involved. Uh, are they going to necessarily change the course of history here? I don't know. It's it's doubtful. Um, I think it can happen. I think history is full of surprises. Um, I know that um, sometimes, you know, time, it, it's funny, in, in, in case of Russia in particular, time works very differently in Russia. Time is very slow in Russia for a while, and then it speeds up radically, and all of a sudden you have all these major changes taking place within a few years, and it slows down again. The Russians are really interesting that way. So I think that a lot of the consequences that we perhaps are not seeing, uh, they are currently germinating. And I don't think I will live long enough to see a democratic Russia, for example. But I do think that there's certain aspects of what we do now and how we approach it that are germinating. And we'll see, or maybe my kids or my grandkids, I don't know, somebody will see how it all changes because you never really know. I do think that uh, it matters for a, a government like Putin's prestige does matter. Uh, you know, getting like, do you remember when we 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 had a G8 before we had a G7? You know what I mean? Right, so, right. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. Them getting, getting removed from the big kids table was actually very hurtful to mm. them. They did not like that. They don't like these kinds of things. So obviously um, there are, and it, you know, again, it's so hard to figure out what is and isn't like we, we, we can't measure what hasn't happened. For example, uh, maybe there was enough pushback to where um, Putin, you know, would not have uh, done what he did in East Ukraine had there were serious consequences right away for Crimea. Right. Right. Or on the other hand, with the pushback that happened later, especially because the plane got shot down. I think the plane getting shot down, obviously it was a shock to everyone. Nobody wanted that plane to come down. It's bad for everyone, right? Um, even though the ghouls that did it have escaped punishment, um, it's not good for the Russian government when that sort of thing happens. I think it might have slowed them down in East Ukraine somewhat because they had to sit back and kind of think about the implications of murdering a bunch of EU citizens, you know, on mm -hmm. Ukrainian soil. You know, so it... It's very hard to talk about consequences when we haven't seen how it all shakes out like in this century, but I would say it's definitely having an effect. And again, one of the other effects that OSINT is having is that we're helping dissidents be more vigilant uh, even when they're abroad. I think that some lives have truly been saved because we provide this kind of information and we show people, here's how to not give away your location. Here's how to make sure your phone isn't being tracked by somebody who wants to kill you. Uh, don't give your phone number out to just anyone, you know, keep a second phone. Uh, I always tell people who are targeted, you know, like you need to get a burner phone. Like here's how we're going to do this for just, just to give you one example of basic safety. And I do think that we have seen that <clears throat> people are safer as a result of it, but it's always like a game. It's like you compare it to game of Thrones, you know, <laughs> at the end of season eight or towards the end of season eight, when they're talking about how, Death is the ultimate enemy. You're always losing against death, but you still have to fight. And I feel like that's kind of how it is, not to be too dramatic about it, but it's kind of how it is. The threat is always evolving, evolving, and you have to evolve with the threat. That is how you do it. 
That was Natalia Antonova coming up with perhaps as close to an answer as it is possible to get to the question how to survive the disinformation wars. And that is that we, individuals, policymakers, social media companies, need to evolve along with the threat. Thank you to both our guests. You can find Nina Yankovic on Twitter at Vitsipedia. Her book, How to Lose the Information War, has just been released in paperback. Natalia Antonova is at Natalia Antonova on Twitter, where you'll also find a link to her newsletter, Natalia Explains the Apocalypse. This week's podcast was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by me, Faisal Yafai. You can find more podcasts, essays and investigations on our website, newlinesmag.com. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you.